It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. I had a wonderful time walking down memory lane with Dick Dupuy. I want to encourage you to go to Dick's episode page on iQuiltersLife.com, if you haven't already, to check out the pictures and links I found for him. What does a successful clothing designer do when they retire? Evidently, part of that is making quilts. At 91, Dick is still busy making quilts. Isn't that great? Thank you, Dick, so much for joining me on A Quilter's Life. I am so happy to get to talk to you today. Oh, thank you, dear. How do you say your last name? Du Fui. I have a short story about that. When I would bind my fabrics from my clothing, my salesman made a comment he had never seen anyone buy fabric without looking at it, but just touching it, because I was talking to him the whole time. And as I was talking, his samples were hanging on a rod, and I had my hand going in between each one and touching it, and then I'd pull out the ones that I touched and liked. I'd pull it up and hook it so that I would plan on going back to it. Anyway, he made a comment, and then finally he says, how do you actually pronounce your last name? And then I told him, and then every time he would try and talk to me after that, he would start off, he'd say, do, 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 and I'd say, do, and then he'd say it. And then after two or three times of this, he finally, he said, oh, I said, do, he said, could I please just call you by your first name, do? <laughs> 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 is that funny? <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, uh, so did you laugh out loud when he asked you that? <laughs> no, I just kept a straight face. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been hard. <laughs> oh, that's great. Tell me about where you were born and raised. I was born in Gaydon, G-U-E-Y-D-A-N, Gaydon, Louisiana. I'm a Cajun. Oh. All the way south of Louisiana and beyond us would be the Gulf. My town, actually to create the town, they built a levee around it and a canal, and then they pumped all the water out because it really was a marsh, and they drained one square mile and fenced it with a levee and then pumped all the water out of that area into the canal around. Right now, today, is the duck hunting paradise, and I see the ducks are starting to come now, according to Facebook, my friends and family showing pictures now of the ducks are starting to arrive. They still speak French and English there. Really? Yeah. Wow. So you were raised bilingual? My grandparents spoke to me in French, and I can make myself understood in French. Naturally, I'm not fluent, but I can make myself understood. That is so neat. My parents spoke both languages fluently, but my grandparents really only spoke French and then broken English. So they would speak to me in French as a child, and I had to learn what they were talking about. But I never really practiced it, so my French is broken French. Yeah. Can you tell me about a special childhood memory you have? People ask, my profession, I'm a clothing designer. Before I was actually school age, my grandmother had a Sears Roebuck catalog of which 
when it expired, you know, every year that you get a new one, the one she had before, she would take and she would fold from one corner to down to create a complete, like a bias fold in that book, one sheet after the other, and that made the book stand up in a sort of a pyramid shape. And she used that as doorstops. Every year she was making one, so she gave it to the family. But they used that as doorstop. I'm like four or five years old. I asked her for one of those books, and she said when she got the new one in, when the new one came in, she gave me that book. I asked my mother for scissors, and my mother said, no, I can't let you play with these scissors. They're grown-up scissors but we'll get you children's scissors next time we go into town. We lived in the country. Next time we go into town. Well, when she got me the scissors and we got home, I went straight to the book, and then I opened the book up, and I thumbed through it, and when I got to clothing, I tore the page out, and Mama didn't know what was in my mind. So she says to me, you're not supposed to do that. I'll show you how to fold it. And as a child, I said, no, this is the way I want. This is what I want to do. And she just said, okay, and then she let me alone. Well, now she's watching. She's curious to see what was going to happen. So I take the scissors now, and I start cutting. And she sees I'm going to cut out one of the figures in the clothing. And it was only women that I chose. And then I cut out the long side of like a, the hip, and then now the arm went off. And Mama said, no, 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 no. And I just ignored her, and I kept cutting it. And when I cut the head off, Mama said, no, you have to stop that. And <laughs> she went to the doctor and said what I was doing, and he didn't have any word for it. And then when I asked for my book back, she hesitated on giving it to me. And then finally, she let me have it. And then, oh, and I asked Grandma to give me a cigar box, Grandpa's cigars. It was wooden boxes then. I got the cigar box, and then I asked for the book back, and then cut one to cut a cool thing out. And then Mama saw I only saved the dress. So she let me do it. So that's how far back my interest in clothing was before I was school age. Wow. So if you ask what thing I can remember best is the fact that what I became in my life went all the way back to that point. How neat. So I was meant to be a clothing designer. Yeah. My clothes that I was designing and the 60s and the 70s are being sold today. Really? If you go to Google and Google the name Jack Bryan, that was the manufacturer that I did clothing for, is Jack Bryan designed by Dupuy. You will see my clothing, my label and my clothing. For 15 years, I designed for a manufacturer. The last 15 years of my career, I did couture, only one of a kind. I did weddings. I did expensive garments because by that time, I had built up of my own client. Now, none of my expensive gowns have been pulled out of the closet. They're still hanging on to them because they're beaded gowns. I specialized in beaded garments. I would do four lines a year for mass production for Jack Bryan. And O'Neill of California was my first job, and they were more expensive. So I only have two that I've seen that have come out in the market because they're just hanging on to them. They're, they're all natural fibers, you know, silks and wools, but the mass production garments were not as expensive, so they're being released by the family. It's actually the grandchildren now that are selling these clothes. Oh, wow. What a legacy. Did you 
end up going to a special school later on for design? I left home when I was 18, went into the service, served my four years, and then upon discharge, I was discharged in uh, San Francisco. I contacted California Berkeley of Arts and Crafts. I got out in September, and they were getting ready for new enrollment. So I called my parents and told them that I wasn't going to be able to come home right away. I'd see them at Christmas time. And they were very disappointed because they were waiting for me to come now, being discharged. But I started school immediately upon discharge. And how long was that school? If I wanted to teach, it was the full time. But again, each year... They would do a major fashion show of the ones that were majoring in clothing. I took everything, sculpturing, oils, and interior design, advertising, sketching for advertising. So it was a complete assortment uh, course. Every year in the fashion part of it, you were required to show in this major fashion show two garments. Well... <laughs> After the second term of the school, I didn't finish the thing. I had started to, to tell you that the, all the clothes that I was making with the fabrics that I got from Mervyn's. Mm-hmm. All these people, over the two years that I had sewed, when the school wanted to do the fashion show, I asked if I could show everything. And the teacher said, of course you can. And she says, how many? And it was 40-something pieces. And he said, 42? So everybody else was showing one or two pieces. And I had, they showed one of mine and one of someone else. One of mine, one of someone else. And that's the way the show went. But it was a one-man show. And then at that show, when he came to me, he said, Dick, what do you plan on doing? Are you going to be a teacher? I said, no, no. I want to design for the studios is what I wanted. I said, I want to go to Hollywood and design for the studio. He said, you don't belong here anymore. You just stop, quit. He said, go and do your thing now. And that's why I quit school. To be able to support myself as a discharge from the service, I didn't really have a job. So I'm living at my aunt's in San Lorenzo. There was this fabric store that I bought my fabric and my notions from, and I'm making clothes for my niece, I'm making clothes for my aunt, and then some of her friends now see what she's wearing and ask me to sew for them. So I started getting money to do that, and then the store, it was called Mervyn's. One day I went in and I asked them at Mervyn's, if I let you display the garment I make from the fabrics that I buy from you, would you give me fabric in advance to be able to use my merchandise to sell your fabric? And the manager said, well, let's try one. Well, I made a garment, and then they put it on a mannequin in the fabric department, and there was no pattern for it. Still, the idea that they, this is a dress that you can make out of this cloth. Then after that, I started using some of their patterns from their thing, too. But that's how it started. And then when I bought my sewing machine, Nike Company gave me 10 lessons on how to operate the sewing machine. And then he says that I was a natural with it, not knowing at the beginning that I did what I did as far as clothing. He said, would you demonstrate my machines? and teach the clients the 10 classes. Well, then after they got their 10 free classes, they wanted private sewing lessons beside that. So all these little things is what supported me while I was in school. Well, so things just opened up for you when you put yourself out there. At every level. I traveled with a sewing machine when I was in the Navy. I had a sea bag and a sewing machine. I did alterations, too, and got paid for it. In fact, aboard ship, I wound up being really in with the captain because he was smaller than me. I'm only five foot two and a half. Oh, really? 
I'm a little guy. <laughs> <laughs> and two of my sons are five foot eight, and I got one six foot two. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm the same height as my daughters. Yeah. My mother was five foot two. But I'm a little giant, I'm telling you. <laughs> it's, it's <like laughs> I, I have five of my natural children. And I lost my wife. And after that, I had my five kids raised, and then I took in three foster. So I raised eight kids. I had four boys and four girls. I have three boys of my own and two girls. And then I took in two girls and one boy. Oh, nice. I was in the hospital for eight months, and... No matter where I'm at, I take over the place. I was knitting scarves for the nurses, and then finally one woman comes in and she says, I see you're crocheting too. I always wanted to learn how to do that. Can you teach me how to crochet? I want to make a baby dress. And then she says, the baby's going to be baptized, such and such. So I said, i tell you what, I'll make the yoke for you, and then I'll start teaching you. Uh, stitch that you can just hang the skirt from that and it'll be very simple then you'll only have that to do the bottom part which would be a repeat so I made the yoke and they said oh no 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 you have to finish the thing it's so beautiful so that's what I was doing when this woman the author was told about me and she came and she sat with me for a couple of hours and then she came back this is a total stranger we're just talking, and she uh, comes back the next day for another visit, and we're talking. And after the third one, she said, Dick, I'm going to write a book about you. And when she told me you know, what she wanted to do, I spoke to my kids, and they said, well, of course, do it, Dad. So anyway, she wrote the book. It took her two years. Do you still live there in Louisiana? No. After I retired... And all my kids were scattered all over the United States. I decided to sell my home in uh, Pasadena. I was there for 37 years. So I sold my home in Pasadena, and my siblings are three girls. I was the oldest, and uh, three sisters. Two of the sisters were living in Arkansas, and the third one was still in Louisiana. Well, the two sisters... When they knew I was going to retire, they said, why don't you come to us? Because I had mentioned that I would have an upset couple of children. If I chose any one of them, the others will be upset that I didn't go near them. You follow me? Mm -hmm. So my sisters, were two of them together in one town, says, why don't you come here that way? The kids can come and visit you like they were having to do before in Pasadena. They have to have to come there. So uh, I chose to do that. Now, the third sister said that her husband would never move. So if he passed away, she would come and join us. And if that happened, but then on the other hand, when she came, she stayed with me, oh, I guess maybe two or three months planning the major move, got all her furniture moved and put into storage, and then she chose a house that she was going to go in and then said that, well, she'd want to spend Christmas with her two daughters who were up north. One was in Spokane and one was in Northern California. She was going to be able to spend some time with the two girls, and she died in that two-week period. All her stuff was in my hometown where I'm living. I'm in a small town in Arkansas. The girls kept saying, well, you know, Gato, it was a little town, so you will love it here because it's like Gato. So I decided to come here, and I've been here 22 years now. It's good to be close to family, isn't it? Well, I've lost two of my sisters now, the one that died She was the closest to me. She was the oldest. The second one was six years younger than me. And then the third sister was born on the 11th of September. That is two days after my birthday. 
I was in the hospital at the same time my mother was in the hospital having the baby. When she went home, they didn't clean her out good. Part of her placenta was left in, and she got gangrene. And then within two weeks, she was in major, major infection. And then when she finally came home, she went into typhus fever. She was in quarantine for over a year. I was taken out of school at 12 years old. My father was a pipeliner, welder, and he would be gone for a couple of months at a time. And I was the one that raised my newborn baby sister. That child wasn't even able to touch her until she was actually walking. Wow. When I look at the school picture of me as 12 years old, I was a baby. Yeah. I learned how to cook at that age. I did the wash in the bathtub because we didn't have that much money. I did everything. Washed dad's overalls in the bathtub on a hand scrub board. No washing machine. And you said you lived in the country. Did you have, were you no, on No, 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 that was before this. Oh, okay. From the country, we moved into town living with my grandpa O'Neill. That was my father's father. And my mother is the Dupuis. I took her maiden name and added it to the end of my name for my design business. It was better to have a French name. So I carried both names. My legal name is Richard Harold O'Neill Dupuis. Oh, wow. From living in the country, <laughs> the reason why we moved is that we had mice in the house, and Mama stepped on one of them's tail, and the tail broke off under her foot, and she's screaming, and that tail was jumping around, and the mouse was gone. But she says, we can't live here anymore. So we moved into Grandpa's home. My grandfather on my father's side was the judge of the parish. And then my grandfather on my mother's side was the mayor. The mayor was a representative of Huey P. Long. And Grandpa O'Neill was not part of that politics. And the two grandpas hated each other. Oh, no. So Dad courted her after she left Gaydar and went to nursing school. And he would go where she was, not in Gaydar, so his father wouldn't know that he was involved with her. And then when they finally got married, I was their first grandchild, so both of them worshipped me. And then Dad finally bought a home. Two years ago, I went to visit my hometown. I had not been there since 1951. <laughs> Over 50 people came to see me. The museum had open house and served refreshments, and they advertised that I was coming. Some of my relatives traveled to come to see me, and then the locals, who evidently knew of me through their parents, came. Now, since then, I have many of those people that are still on Facebook or corresponding with me. But that was two years ago that I went then. Anyway, the two grandparents lived separated by one street. They each owned a city block. <laughs> And their homes then, Grandpa O'Neill's place was divided in half. He had the biggest house in town, and it was so big he thought he was going to have a huge family. He only had two. But he had this huge house built, and the upstairs was the first Catholic church. That's how big the house was. And then half the house downstairs was the courthouse. I'd sit there and watch him, him marry people, and the division was a hallway. Our house was on one half of it. You know, Grandpa and us lived on one half. We shared the same dining room and the kitchen. His furniture was magnificent. So it all came from France, and the flood in 41 took the whole first two floors and destroyed all that magnificent furniture. Mm. 
Anyway, in Grandpa O'Neill's house still stands. I saw that two years ago. My house was gone. A hurricane flood took that one. We had a small house. Yeah. But our house was on the street in between the two grandpas. So as a child, I could walk to each grandpa very easy. Oh, wow. You just told me that you just had your 91st birthday? Yes. 1930 is when I was born. Okay. You've mentioned several other crafts besides quilting. You mentioned knitting and crocheting. I knit and I crochet. I paint also. I have watercolors. All my oils were given away. As fast as I would finish one, I'm thinking I can always paint another one. Someone would ask for it. So I don't have an oil. But in later years, I started doing watercolors. So my children have all my watercolors. But I do have photographs of them. Mm-hmm. I cook and bake. I am a good cook. Everybody will tell you that. Naturally, I sew. I'm a clothing designer. My gardens were wonderful. I took, when I bought the old house, it was a two-story house on the heritage program to where Sundays people promenade in Pasadena looking at these old houses. Well, when they would come by my place, they would actually stop and enjoy the gardens because the first thing I did was I tore out all the lawn. It was only lawn from the house to the street, manicured lawn, but it was just lawn. There was not a plant. And I tore that all out. I thought the neighbors were going to drop dead when they saw that all of this was dirt. And then I couldn't afford to buy full-size plants. So the first thing, I had my garden laid out the way it was going to finish. And then I started laying my plants out that were like two feet tall or a foot and a half. And then big spaces between them on just this dirt. And then I thought, well, I couldn't live like that. It wouldn't bother me. But the neighbors are very upset. They're wondering what's going to happen. The first year, I had just the dirt. And then one of my neighbors who became friends was one of the float designers. And in preparation for that year's, oh, I'm right on, on the Rose Parade route. So that was another thing. 37 years, I hosted my place every New Year's Eve. You couldn't pull in after 6 o'clock, and you could not leave until after the Rose Parade because everything is closed off because of all the preparation for all the floats and all the bands and everything. So you have to be home by 6, or if you have guests, they have to sleep at your place or sleep on the parade route. Mm -hmm. So every year I had a house full of people. One year my daughter comes. I thought Hell's Angel was invading. There were so many motorcycles that pulled into my driveway, and my daughter was the only female. They were all bikers, you know, in leather and everything, but it happened to be, and she invited 15 Marines. She was going out with a Marine, and she told all the guys at the base, anyone who wants to come to the Rose Parade can come. <laughs> and we had that year over 30 people sleep at my house. Okay, I'm a gardener. Oh, from the dirt, my friend who was a rose decorator says to me, I know that you're doing a lot of planting. He said, I'm going to be featuring California poppies. He's using the seeds to accent something on the road. He said, would you like some poppy seeds? And I said, sure. He brought me like 25 pounds of poppy seeds. And I took that and threw poppy seeds everywhere on the dirt. And my first year was a poppy meadow. You didn't even see my young plant. The whole yard become a meadow. Then that set a pace for going forward. I dressed my girls on special occasions, even when they were in teens, 
all in the same dress with different colors. Well, this particular Easter, we went to church, and I had the four boys dressed in the same suit and my four girls in these pastel color gowns. That's when the dresses were worn all the way down to the ankles. It was that period when they wore long skirts, and we looked like a wedding procession coming into the church. <laughs> anyway, they're sitting in the garden, and in that year, it was all zinnias, all shades of green zinnias, and one year it was all marigolds. And then finally, my plants got where they were impressive enough to become the garden that it turned into. And the, I did see pictures on your Facebook page, and now it makes sense, the pictures of the four girls. They were sitting on a white wicker chase lounge, and they had zinnias out in the garden, and the yard was filled with zinnias. And I've seen pictures of you with your quilts. Oh, that's right. Okay. Can you tell me who introduced you to quilting? Well, when I came here, I didn't think I was going to be sewing anything, really. But I still brought my knitting machines. I have four different ones. And I brought a factory hammer and a power machine and a regular sewing machine. And my wife's body, her dress form, she was my model. And she had a perfect body. Renee of Hollywood is a foundation garment company. They used her body to make their merry widows like a corset, and they used her dimensions to make that foundation. It was called a Jezebel. Hmm. They had her wear the corset in their advertising with a petticoat. Wow. She was a model. Well, you said she was beautiful. She was. She was beautiful. Oh, she was pregnant eight times. We lost three. In between each one, she lost one. Oh, wow. But she modeled both when she was thin, my clothes and the other manufacturers' clothes. But maternity clothes, she modeled those continually because she patterned herself. They wanted not to lose her because she was not pregnant. So she wore a pad to be able to model for them. Huh. Thinking about your quilts, do you have a favorite quilt? I don't know whether you saw the one that's called Dancing Flames on Water. It's a blooming nine patch. When I first came over here, I didn't think I was going to be sewing. Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing was one of my grand nieces comes to me and she says, I was telling my teacher that you're a clothing designer and she wants to know if you would fix one of the cheerleaders' outfits. You know, the way she wanted an alteration. Mm-hmm. And I said, honey, I don't think I'm going to do that. And she said, well, the child is me. So naturally, I did it, okay? The next thing, some of the other girls wanted something done to theirs. And I wound up doing alterations about 15 kids all together. It was unbelievable how they were turning up one after the other. And then I made two gowns for granddaughters, graduation gowns. I made two of those. And then I naturally did baby quilts and crochet baby sweaters and stuff. I didn't make any dresses for the babies, but I did one granddaughter. Her mother advertised that. She's going to be starting school in in September, and she couldn't afford to go and buy her anything. So immediately, I started sewing for her. I made so that actually it looked like four outfits, but all the fabrics coordinated. So she had four outfits, but it made 16. It had pants, it had a skirt, and it had a blouse, and it had four different things. You shed 16 different outfits after I'd finished just the four. That was a lot of work. Not really, because it wasn't complicated clothing. I bet she had fun with that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you have a tool that you like using in your quilting? 
I have all kind of rulers. You have to have the machine. I'm really not happy with the machine I have now because I was used to my other machine and I had everything for it. And this one here, I keep buying more attachments, but I don't like the machine. It doesn't have the power my other one did. And when you get to even a seam, you can't have two seams that be on top of each other. It won't go over that hump. Hmm. Or even to just the single layer of fabric over a seam. It will stall and just sew in one place. So that's disgusting the way that machine is. Anyway, I'm finishing up a quilt. I'm setting up borders on now. I've done the one two-and-a-half-inch dark border in chocolate, and then I'm adding now the light color, and then to that is going to be a multicolor of borders, and then ending up with a wider chocolate band. It's a new quilt that I'm just about finished with. I have one quilt that's ready for the quilter, and it's uh, in my dining room on the table. I was going to bring it to the quilters today, but I'll put that off till next Monday. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that one has 160 three-inch squares, and the three-inch squares are every one an individual picture that I've created out of pieces, so some of the pieces are no more than a quarter of an inch. you got more fabric and seams in back of the quilt. Wow. The most pieces that I think I've found, because I started counting some of them, but there was 27 pieces in that one little three-inch square. Oh, my. It's interesting because everybody I've shown it to will just stand there and want to look at each one individually. They're like little stained glass windows. Mm-hmm. Eventually, that'll get finished, and I'll show it on the Internet. Yeah. That goes to my daughter. Well, with your quilts, is there a favorite part of the process that you like? I like the piecing. I hate putting them together, preparing them for machine quilting. I hate that. I hate doing that. And the other thing that I don't like is the hand finishing of the binding. I do great hand finish, but it's boring. I love piecing my quilts, and I love the design. Most of my designs that I do are, you know, original designs are done on draft paper. Uh-huh. I use a quarter-inch little lock, and my whole quilt is worked in quarter-inch. Can you tell me, did you have a worst quilting experience? Well, there's a lot of things come up like you you run out of fabric. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure if you're a quilter, you know what I'm talking about. That's yeah, like that's a, pretty bad. Then I spend months shopping around trying to duplicate a print. <laughs> Find something I can fill in with another print that is so close. And usually something works out, but that's always a disaster. And I hate to have my sashes enormous because I overbuy not to have that happen. Mm -hmm. Now I'm at the point where I am going to start making scrappy quilts. I have so much stash that I want to start doing scrappy quilts because I'm trying to think of shortcuts because... My quilts get so involved that it's a lot of work in them, and it's endless. My family is so big. I've got 27 grandkids now, and they're getting married and pregnant because there's a wedding quilt. And then, okay, I have one granddaughter called me up and said, I'm pregnant. And then I said, oh, so wonderful, wonderful. And then oh, a few days goes by, and I'm talking to her mother. And I said, isn't that great that Jessica's pregnant? She's pregnant? They call me because they want a quilt. <laughs> you saw that? <laughs> the grandma didn't know. <laughs> anyway, I know as soon as they're pregnant, I know when they're getting married. And it's endless. Yeah.
they're making it so that it's impossible for me to stop. Like I started to say, I'm trying to take shortcuts. Now I'm buying stuff from, I love that company, Donna Jordan. She posts almost every day a video of a pattern that she works. And she's got the pattern, and then she has all the fabric already in package. You know, like it's going to be a, a fat quarter, it's going to be a jelly roll or a charm pack. Well, she has one of those packs to make that particular quilt. Well, I've been buying some of these, buying some, I probably have over a dozen, maybe more than that, thinking that that will be the shortcut of putting stuff together. I don't have to chop a whole bunch of things to match grabbing a jelly roll. Yeah, It's already colored for me. And then if I use one of her patterns, I make it my own. I'm going to change something. So I I think it'd be a quicker quilt. And then that way, I'm not making king size or queen size like some of my quilts are. I'll do standard size or twin and they just have to be satisfied that if they want a quilt, because I can't continue doing what I've been doing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> so uh, why do you think you make quilts rather than spending your time doing something else? Because I've only sewn ever since I was 12 years old. I learned everything from my mother who was in bed dying for almost a full two years before she was actually taking over the house again. Oh, after the two-year period, she says, well, you'll be able to go to school in September. I said, I'm not going back to school. Now I'm only 14. And she said, why? I said, because I'm older than everybody. And she said, I don't care what you're saying, Sadie, you're going to go back to school. And she forced me to go, and I went, and I'm in the classroom, and I'm the smallest boy in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't feel subconscious enough, and, and actually then I became smarter than I was before. I had problems in school until I went back older. Then it was easier for me. Wow. I have another one. I goofed off in a particular class. I was a junior. It was a biology class. I goofed off, and then at the end, before graduation, that term there, the teacher said, Dick, you are going to fail, and they'll fail you for the year because you've been goofing off all year. And I said, don't do that to me. And she said, well, you play, you, you play the sport, <laughs> you're going to whatever. I said, is there anything I can do? She said, you'll have to give me a miracle. And I felt doomed because she was really being cold. So uh, I'm thinking, what can I do? And then we lived right across the street from the rice mill. Anyway, I'm goofing off around the rice mill, and I see a big, big dead rat. And you could tell that it just died. Rigor mortis hadn't even said it. I said, I'm going to make a skeleton. I took that rat. <laughs> Mama threw out the pots and everything else after that. But I took that thing home, and I didn't want to lose track of what it was and tried not to damage the joint. I really was like a surgeon working, taking the meat off as much as I can to the bone. Some things I couldn't do that. I just boiled the whole thing and then picked the meat off afterwards. Anyway, I cleaned that rat, kept everything in order, and then after everything was dried and picked clean, I reassembled it with modeling glue because I made model airplanes, and I put him on a finished, varnished block of wood, and I fenced it in a position holding a popcorn. (laughs) 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 And he looked like a little dinosaur, like you see a skeleton of a dinosaur. I brought that skeleton to that teacher, and she almost fainted. She lost her mind when she saw that. She said, where did you get that? I said, I made him. She said, you did your miracle. (laughs) 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 Oh, I was the first boy in the state of Louisiana to take home economics. The town finally found out I sewed when I was, I guess, 16. 
And when they found out I sewed, I thought, okay, then I want to learn really the fine points of sewing. So I'm going to take home ec. When I went to the principal and I said, Mr. Bush, I would like to take home ec. He said, what? Take home ec? No boys take home ec. You're going to take future farmers. And I said, why can't I take home ec? I said, is there a law against it? He said, no, but there's no boy in the state of Louisiana that would be taking home ec. Also didn't like sports. I couldn't catch a ball. Anyway, I kept insisting, and my mother naturally went along with me. And she's saying, why can't he take it? If he wants to take a course, he should be able to allow to take the course. Is it against the law? No, they make garments in there. He's a boy and they're girls. My mother said, I tell you what, you have the girl's parents know that he's there and the parents give an okay for my son to be in that thing. And if there's anything comes up, he will drop out on his own. And they let me take it. Uh, my teacher was thrilled the fact that she had me in her class. My school, they had their own oil well. The school had everything available to them. The town didn't have freezers. Nobody in town had a freezer. So the school had this freezer with, like, mailbox lockers to where FSA boys raised their own cow, they raised their pigs, they raised their chickens, they slaughtered, packaged it, sold it to the citizens in town. That's how advanced the school was. We didn't buy a pencil or nothing as a student because the school had that kind of money. The class house, it was called the Humec Cottage, and that's what it was. It was an actually home built on the school campus. And it was a cottage. It had the bedroom. It had a formal dining room with a china closet, fancy china dishes, the silver service, crystal goblet. You had your different stoves and your different work areas in the cooking area of the school. And the sewing room had its own facilities for sewing. When I was there, the cooking class was done so that it was six couples. So naturally... I would have a girl with me, and all the girls would have a guy, and then a meal would be planned, and the total meal would be divided into six different courses, and you would do a course this for this meal. It could be the meat course this time. It could be the salad next time. But we sit down to a formal dinner with your guests and with napkins and the whole thing, learning table manners. The nursery had an advanced baby that peed and drank a bottle. You had to take care of it. You even gave the baby an enema. You learned how to do everything. My home ec teacher, even after she retired, we kept in touch. Oh, I forgot to tell you, I didn't get a sewing machine until the town knew I sewed. I was making my mother's clothes and my sister's clothes. And my mother would tell her friends that her clothes were bought at Maison Blanche in New Orleans. And that's how well her clothes were made by the time I started taking home ec. And you were doing that by hand, right? Every stitch was made by hand until the town found out I sewed. And the way the town found out was I made a gown for my oldest sister, Tita. She was a bridesmaid. When I met Joanne, I was probably 22, and I think she was 15, and she told me she was 18. At that time, there was a couple of sisters. Their musical thing was the Bell Sisters. Joanne was 15 years old, and she was the girl that played the piano for this couple. She played their music, and they sang. And they entertained the USO. I was at the USO, and Joanne's playing the piano, and these girls are singing. And when that part of the show was over with, they started setting up for the dance, for the band. And I'm telling my buddy, I'm going to ask that gal to dance. He said, you won't be able to get near her. Look at her right now. She's playing now. They're all standing around singing songs. And she's playing rinky-dink tunes that they sing with. The service people have ganged around her. And he said, you won't be able to get near her. 
And I said, well, I'm going to try. He said, I bet you $10 that you're not going to be able to get nearer. And $10 then was like 100 I guess. Yeah. I said, okay, it's a bet. Now I knew I had to do it. So when the band started playing, I go up and I worm my way through the wolves and I grabbed her shoulder and I said, could I have this dance? Now, Joanne, I never, ever would have picked out someone taller than me. Joanne, barefooted with the same height. And she got her hair piled on her head and she got high heel shoes on and she's standing now. And when I got there, I couldn't turn around because I'm going to lose that $10. So I see she's tall, but I went anyway. And I said, could I have this dance? And she looks at me like I'm a worm. She says, can you tango? And I don't say anything. I just grab her by the wrist and I slowly, not jerked her, just pulled on her. And she followed me onto the floor. And we danced. I didn't introduce myself. I didn't say hello. Nothing was spoken. I brought her back where I found her. And I said, thank you so much for this dance. And I turned around and walked off and asked for my $10. (laughs) That was my first meeting with Joanne. One week goes by. I'm at the same place. And the Blue Tango was the name of the song that was playing. The Blue Tango starts playing. And someone taps me on the shoulder, and I turn around. She says, Sailor, can I have this dance? And I said, yes. And then we danced, and we still didn't talk. And at the end of it, then she's smiling and laughing. And then we talk, and then we danced the next dance, and we danced the next dance. And finally, one of the older women came over and tapped her on the shoulder and said, you know you're only allowed to dance three dances with any one service man. And Joanne says, why? And she said, because that's the rule of the house. She says, well, I don't work here. And she said, then you don't belong here. So Joanne says to me, let's go. So with that, she's walking, and I'm following her, and we go out, and then she's got a little bug yellow convertible. Now, she's 15, and she's got a car. Her parents were wealthy. We get in her car, and we drive to a little drive-in somewhere, and we have a Coke, and we're talking. And then it's getting later and later, maybe 10, 11 o'clock. We're driving and driving, and she was talking, just chatting away. We're in a residential area, and we pull up in front of this big home. I said, where are we? She said, well, this is where I live. And I'm thinking, oh, she can invite me in her house. So we're still in the car, and after a while, Joanne says, well, I'm going to have to go in. And I said, oh. And she says, well, aren't you going to kiss him goodnight? And I'm a country boy, honey. I'm from Louisiana. I don't do nothing about nothing, you know. So I'm, like, dumbfounded when she said, so I lean forward, and I give her a peck. And she says, you don't know how to kiss. And with that, she turns out, slams the door, and she's walking toward her. I said, where am I? And she says, you're whatever name of the town was. And I said, what am I going to do? And she said, a bus will come by. You can take the bus. And she walks in the house. I'm standing at the curb now, dark, <laughs> and waiting for a bus. A bus pulled up. It was the wrong number. So I told him where I want to go to the USO. So he tells me the bus to take. I wound up getting there. Next week, I'll be damned that Joanne isn't back at the USO. And she comes up to me. She says, you know, I can't be in here. We have to go. I said, I'm not getting in any car with you. She said, well, you don't have to get in the car. We'll go to the pike. And the pike was in the same area. She said, we'll walk to the pike. Because I said, I'm not getting in your car. So we walked to the pike. We had a good time. And then after a while, she says, it's getting late. I'm going to have to go home. So we're going back to get to her car. And we're going through the park. And she said, oh, do you want to sit here in the park for a while? And I said, yeah. So I'm thinking she had said I was a lousy kisser. Because that was on my mind now. <laughs> <laughs> so we're sitting there. And you know how the tip of routine. I put my arm around her. And then after a little while. I lean in toward her, and then she turns around and leans toward me, 
and I plant one on her. And she, she sighs, and then we kiss and we smooth like crazy. And then after that, she says, I'll see you next week. I said, no, the ship leaves Wednesday. She said, Wednesday? Then she said, I want your address. And we exchanged address. And she says, where is it leaving? And I told her. And she said, I'll see you off. And I said, no, they won't let you. You'll have to be only family to do that. And the ship leaves at daybreak, always. So I said, it'll be daybreak when the ship will be pulled out. So I said, they're not going to let you in. Well, you know, she showed up. She got in. She talked her way in. And she was on the dock. I was three stories high on the hospital ship, looking down on this little group of people. And then as it's moving, she lets out, Dick! And I wonder. And I'm looking and turned if I don't see her. Because I didn't even recognize her from three stories up at dawn uh, <laughs> until she called. And never dreaming that she would be there. And then now I'm calling back, and there's probably 500 sailors all on this side of the ship. So I'm calling back, and she doesn't know where to wave, and then the sailors are horrible. They're yelling back to her, hi, honey, this, So I took a match, and I lit a match, and then she sees the match. I said, I'm the one with the match. Now everybody lighting matches. So as the ship goes, Joanna's waving all across the way, you know, back and forth. <laughs> anyway, we wrote about six months, and then she's talking about marriage. And I said, I'm telling you, I'm not going to get married until I'm out of school and I can support a wife. And she said, well, if you don't love me enough to marry me, then that was it. Okay, no more correspondence. A year and a half goes by. I am transferred off the ship, sea duty, because I had served my two years. My choice to go to Honolulu, Hawaii. I got it because I did the captain's alteration. My sister lived in Hawaii. She was there a full year before I got there. And the house was right on Wacky Key, okay? Every weekend, I would stroll the hotels in a bathing suit and wind up picking up a single woman that goes there on vacation because it's Hawaii. Anyway, I'm in that hotel, and I hear, Dick, and I turn around this a uh, year and a half later. Joanne, her grandmother, and her sister were checking in that hotel. That's how we met. Grandma paid all expense. I had a convertible. And during the daytime, I drove Grandma all over the island. She paid for everything, the gas for the car. At night, she had tickets for shows. She paid for the dinners, everything. And then we were with Grandma and Beverly, the young sister, until maybe 10 o'clock at night. And then Joanne and I would be on the beach until 1, 2 o'clock, and then... I wouldn't see her until later the next day. And then I'd be with Grandma, like, in the after lunch. And then we'd be together doing stuff until until Grandma would go to bed at 10 o'clock. Well, that went on for the full two weeks. And then I took leave for the full time they were there. Then now we're getting serious, okay? So we're riding again. And then she starts with the wedding again. And we're back and forth letters and no phone calls. And then finally she said, like the other time, if you don't love me enough to marry me, then evidently you don't love me. So that was it. I don't see her again. Now I'm in school, in college. A year and a half goes by. At Christmas time, holiday time, I'm in the train station in San Francisco. Dick, I turn around, is Joanne. She comes to me grabs me, kisses me, and then she holds me on the shoulders, leans back. She says, you are never, ever getting away again. And she meant it. I never left her after that. Wow. Well, Dick, thank you so much for sharing your story with me. I so appreciate it. Well, you're welcome, dear. Thank you for calling me. Uh-huh. 
拜拜。Bye bye You can find more stories on aquilterslife.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so each episode will be downloaded automatically. Also, I want to hear about you and your wonderful quilts. Please contact me, Paula Chamberlain, through the website to set up an interview. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>